Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for episode 13 of the program. This is The Podject, and this is your host, Hopsy. Very, very excited to have you on this Thanksgiving weekend, folks. It's October, fall is in full swings, and the leaves around me are certainly changing, and they look extravagant, don't they? I fell victim to the pumpkin patch Instagram photo shoot today. Went out there with my girlfriend, uh, saw some friends, spent some time, picked some apples for the first time. I'd never gone apple picking. It was actually awesome. Apples, by far the best fruit on the planet. I'm like a horse. I eat like six a day. I literally think I had eight or nine while I was picking. Only took a 10-pound bag home. Um, absolutely love apples, and it was great to see. I'd never done that. I'd never really uh, seen apple trees up close like that, so it was really cool to see the native, um, I guess we'll say the native tongue of my, my, my favorite fruit. So it was a very joyous fall occasion. Um, I can't believe it's already the time. This year is just, you know, obviously melted by. It's such a weird pace. Like now, today I really realized, I'm like, wow, it's fall. It really is fall today. And um, got a guest on today. We have a very impressive young man, very good speaker. And he's actually a stud, man. You got to Google a picture of this kid. I'll post some of the thing. He's got the bow tie going. He's got the good hair. He loves to get up there and speak. He's great at it. Um, he's leader of the NDP party. I mean, I kind of reach out the board. I mean, I personally got no involvement with the NDP party at all. It was just totally random. I just reached out, heard about his story, and it worked out. We had a good conversation. Ended up going almost an hour. So I'm not going to touch on too much other than that. I'll let you, uh, the listener, enjoy that. We had... He has some, you know, he's he's got a great mind and he's got good ideas and I mean I think he's he's part of a party that's uh, trying to gain some traction in that province and I just thought it was a really good opportunity to try something different on the podcast. I mean I've, I've reached out and, and um, interviewed some cool people before, but this was a guy I did never didn't know at all. So I mean I think it was good for me to try to work on interviewing someone I, I didn't know. I mean it was a little hard in these COVID times. I mean. Didn't even have a video going. It was just us speaking to one another, but it, but it was good. It was really good. So I hope you all enjoyed that. I, I had a great time doing it, and I'm going to continue to reach out and have some cool content. Um, some really cool guests will hopefully be coming on, and, and I'm just going to keep up that differentiation of uh, of uh, solo episodes at times, and then we're going to try to have guests, maybe multiple, and, and maybe reoccurring. So again, nothing set in stone here. We're going to keep changing. But uh, a little bit of news about some potential uh, hockey coming back. I mean, I, I still think at the moment some leagues are changing their uh, start dates to uh, a January 2021 beginning. But uh, for the moment, some North American pro hockey changes. Uh, the SPHL came out first, actually, which is the Southern Professional Hockey League, which is, there goes the NHL, AHL, Coast, the Spill. Uh, great league, great league, great kids down there. Um, they announced today that... Only five teams of the 10-team league will be making an appearance in this season. And they're going to be playing a 42-game schedule that uh, starts on Boxing Day, December 26th. So the Birmingham Bulls, Huntsville Havoc, Knoxville Ice Bears, Macon Mayhem, and the Pensacola Ice Players are set to do battle in this 42-game abbreviated schedule, which is crazy. So I am currently signed with the Bulls. Um... And I didn't know about this. I just kind of heard about it. This this just happened on October 6th. And so I was wondering how this is all going to play out. But the other teams, and which were some of the good teams in the league, Evansville, Fayetteville, Peoria, Quad City, and Roanoke, uh, aren't playing this year. But the guys who were all supposed to be on those teams are now free agents. So this year it is going to be the super spill. It's going to be not the SPHL. It's going to be the SSPHL, the Super Southern League, the Southern Super League. Is literally what's going to be. It'll actually be. It's going to be really being a strong league. Interesting to see what's going to happen. Um, the league above it, the East Coast League, which is part of the NHLPA, um, <clears throat> they have announced that they are going to try to do a little something different because of all the different teams and different states, different jurisdictions, and how they're dealing with the pandemic. Um, Thirteen teams will begin a 72-game season, which starts on December 11th. Those teams will be Allen, Florida, Greenville, Indy, Jacksonville, Kansas City, Orlando, Rapid City, South Carolina, Tulsa, Utah, Wheeling, and Wichita. And additionally, the remaining teams will begin their season on January 15th, competing in a 62-game season. And apparently the Atlanta Gladiators have announced that they will not be partaking in the next season due to the pandemic, but they um, are hoping to be back for the season after and that all their players are immediately free agents. So just more jobs. we got the British League canceled more teams you know losing places for bodies to play so it's going to be tight playing in north america this year uh the southern league is going to be good the coast is going to be good um they're 
because of the teams playing different amounts of games played, they're going to go off uh, winning percentage is how they're going to do the standings, which is unique. I don't think I've ever heard of that happening in hockey. Hopefully it works out. This regular season, the coast is set to conclude on June 6th. The regular season is going to conclude on June 6th. So that is a late one for the fellas. A Kelly Cup run after that is going to take you into July. It's, it's, so it's, a weird, it's a weird season. I hope that this all happens. I mean, this is a great announcement that they're trying to, you know, that they have dates in mind. I just hope that we can get there. I just really hope that we can get there and actually play some hockey. Uh, no news when the NHL will be back. Uh, we'll see what happens. Right now, for the moment, though, we got baseball, we got hockey, we got some stuff rolling on. But it's an interesting fall. It feels weird. Almost doesn't, uh, almost doesn't feel like uh, it should be this time of year. But here we are, um, folks. I, I, I'm excited about this interview. I'm just gonna throw it right over. Um, this kid was a beauty, um, and I want to hear what you have to say about him. I also just want to talk about we. I've recently derived an email for the podcast, which is going to be the podcast, the project podcast at gmail.com. And if you, the viewer ever would like to message me and uh, bring up anything, any, any question tip, if some, some of them are funny, maybe I'll read them out in the show. I just thought that'd be something hilarious. So I made a new email, uh, get in touch with me, uh, because this podcast is basically me without the help of my friend, uh, Matt Donnelly from time to time, who will be helping me with the editing of this episode. We hope to have it out by Sunday because I've been terrible at that. But uh, shoot me an email. Shoot me a question. Let's do some weird shit. It'd be hilarious. Um, let's get to the interview, folks. Here we have Mackenzie Thomason. Here we go, folks. Everybody, welcome to episode 13's interview segment. Very happy to have you. And this week we are doing something a little different. I actually reached out to this impressive young man via Twitter, gave him a little message, and he responded and agreed to come on the show and have a little bit of a conversation. So I'd like to introduce you guys all to 23-year-old Mackenzie Thompson, who is the leader of the New Brunswick NDP party and just participated in a provincial election just over a month ago. Very impressive young man. Welcome to the show, Mackenzie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be able to do these interviews. Awesome. And I mean, I honestly just thought I saw your story. I came across it through a couple of different news outlets and it just intrigued me. And you've been doing this for a couple of years. I mean, most kids are running student council at their universities or high schools at the age you're at right now. And you've been over there not only just you're doing it with provincially, you're running for legislature. Like it's very impressive what you're doing. I've seen some of your debate clips. I mean, you're a very articulate young man. I just thought it'd be great to come on, talk to the people. I mean, we don't have a huge following here at the project, but we're growing quick. But anyways, I thought it'd be cool for you to come on. Tell us a little bit about your story, how you got involved into politics. And I mean, you, you seem like a smart, well-spoken man. I just think you'd be a good guest to come on and just have a conversation kind of out of the blue. Other than you and me talking between Twitter, we talked about t- 10 minutes before this on the phone, a little bit. How, how are you? Hey, how are you doing? And here we are recording this interview. So this is pretty wholesome and Thank you so much again for doing this on such short notice. So just tell the listeners a little bit about where you're from, uh, where you grew up, high school, that sort of things, and maybe how you got into politics in the first place. Yeah, so I uh, am originally from a rural part of New Brunswick, just outside of Fredericton called Tracy. Um, I moved out to Fort McMurray. So I know you had mentioned you're from Calgary. So it's a little, little closer anyway. They're about eight hours drive from Calgary, Fort McMurray. Um, and I'm a rural person at heart. I, I really like being in a slower paced country setting. So I, I don't like cities. Um, but Fort McMurray is a, a great place to live and, and been to Edmonton and Calgary as well. And they're uh, great places to be, um, great places to live. Um, and after I graduated high school, I went to Westwood Community High School in Fort McMurray. Um, after I graduated high school, I moved back to New Brunswick. Uh, my family's all here, grandparents, aunts, uncles. Uh, my parents and brother just moved home last year before the pandemic, thankfully. Um, so I went to a year of university and uh, decided that that wasn't the right fit. So I went to work and I decided to stay here. I got involved in the 2015 federal election with the NDP on the uh, University of New Brunswick campus in Fredericton. And it just kind of snowballed, and I was elected uh, at the age of 21 in March of 2019, uh, turned 22 in July. So I was uh, the youngest provincial political leader, as far as I can tell, of any party uh, in the history of New Brunswick politics. So uh, being 21 definitely gives you a different perspective. It definitely gives you uh, a target on your back. People tend to use it against you, but uh, I think it's something that... uh, 
is very important, especially considering the youth vote is one of the lowest uh, turnouts come election time. So yeah, that's I kind of just got involved with with elections, with campaigning, uh, like I say, in the 2015 federal election, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Awesome. So you just literally came across the NDP on campus and you get involved with them and then take us kind of the timeline of from your involvement. Like I know you just kind of said it in a way, but what were the steps that, you know, you you get involved, you're doing some campaigning, but then next thing you know it, you're elected to be an interim party leader that's lasted for, I mean, a multiple year stance and you're still doing it today. Just went through an election. Like how did that all come to be? Like, were you a kid that did like debate in high school? Were you interested in politics before? Or was this something that just kind of came upon you and seemed like an opportunity and you kind of ran with it and here you are today? Or was this something that you thought you'd see yourself doing growing up? Um, I actually, it's kind of hit and miss. I was in uh, politics in uh, elementary school and parts of middle school. Um, but when I got into high school, I, I it was a passion of mine, but I, I didn't do it in school. So I wasn't involved with my student council or anything like that. But as soon as I graduated or got ready to graduate, I should say in 2015, I graduated in June. And in June of 2015, there was a provincial election in Alberta, um, as I'm sure you can remember if you were following it then. Um, And the NDP won a majority in Alberta. And that's, you know, it kind of put me onto the NDP path. And then I moved home. um, And I just kind of kept going at it like that. So I started with uh, door knocking. I helped put up signs. I did phone canvassing, helped file paperwork. That's kind of how I got started. Um, And like I say, I was only 18 at the time, 17, 18, 19 at the time. And uh, basically, I got involved with the provincial wing of the party in New Brunswick. And again, did the same kinds of things, paperwork, phone canvassing, door to door, helping with fundraising. Uh, And the opportunity came up to be a... uh, provincial candidate in the 2018 provincial election here in New Brunswick, and I took that opportunity. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't do as well as we had hoped in that election, and uh, our leadership did change. Uh, We had that election in uh, October of 2018, and then in February of 2019, uh, our leadership had changed. So our council got together, and uh, there was myself, another gentleman that put their name, our names forward to uh, be the interim leader of the party. And I did win that election uh, within our council. And the way our party works is basically we had to set up a new leadership race or a leadership race to get uh, a person who was going to be there uh, permanently. And that was supposed to be four months. So I was supposed to have a four month contract and then a new leader would come in, I'd be good to go, and I would go back to helping with the more background scenes of the party. Uh, unfortunately, that person was disqualified. They failed the vetting process. So they weren't able to be on the ballot. So the executive reset the race. It was supposed to be done in June of 2020. Uh, so you got to remember, I was elected in March of 2019, and then August of 2019 was the first vote that got scrapped uh, due to uh, lack of candidates and then it was moved to june of 2020 uh and as anybody who has existed in the last little bit knows covid kind of put uh stop to all in-person gatherings so we did have to move it from june of 2020 until april of 2021 so if i remain leader until 2021 it just all depends on how the leadership race uh this one pans out if there's more than one candidate then we will uh have a have an election in April of 2021, uh, I will have been leader for two years and a month. So this four-month opportunity that came up uh, that I got elected for uh, turned into uh, what could possibly be two over two years. So it's great. It's a lot longer than I thought, but it's, it's a great uh, position. I love doing it. Absolutely. And so what is for you stepping in and doing that leadership role like like how much honest like work how much work is going into that right away like you're probably involved with overseeing a lot of people who are a lot older than you have been maybe doing things a lot longer or were you involved with a permitted or like maybe people that were just getting into it as well like what was the party looking like at that time and and I guess how did you shoulder that load just going through it just getting involved I mean being relatively new to politics and all and then you're thrown in that leadership role did you find that just kind of ran with it or was there obviously some bumps in the road yeah i mean every leadership change comes with bumps. Um, I think those can be exacerbated when 
you get a person like myself who who isn't uh, hugely experienced in real world politics. Like I said, I've been involved in my middle school uh, student council, but I had really been involved with leadership at that level uh, in a practical sense. So it was a little bit rocky to to have that transition going on. But, you know, I work full time. Um, so I just I think that helped. I think people saw that I was working full time and still putting in uh, 20 to 30 hours a week with the party, making sure that everything was uh, done, making sure everything was up to date and making sure that everybody was doing what they had to do. And I think that actually helped a lot because they saw that, you know, I wasn't just a stereotypical young person who just wanted to sit back and have everything handed to them. You know, that's obviously not a stereotype that I think exists or it's not a uh, personality trait that I think exists on a large scale, but it is unfortunately a stereotype that we have to contend with. And I think the fact that, like I say, I was working 40 hours a week and then working another 20 to 30 hours a week on top of that, I think helped a lot. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of people in the New Democratic Party here in New Brunswick who have been doing it a lot longer. And the ones that are here that are helping, they have embraced me with uh, more care, compassion and education than I can ever have hoped for. They are an amazing team to work with. And uh, it's a partnership that has got our finances back on track that, you know, we had a snap election here in the province back in September. We're supposed to have two more years. Um, And basically what that means is we did about 10 months worth of work that we would normally take over a year, you know, 10 months to 12 months to do. Uh, We basically did that in two weeks. And without the team that we had, I don't think it would have been possible. Um, Like I say, we did, I like to say we did about a month's worth of work a day, um, getting candidates, filing paperwork, making sure that uh, debate prep was done, everything that, like I say, normally gets taken place 10 to 12 months before uh, the election starts happened in the two weeks prior to the vote. So it was uh, a very quick process. And the team that we had uh, is bar none. They were absolutely amazing. So how how was the, um, I didn't get to watch it, but I did see obviously a couple highlight clips of you participating in the leadership debate. How was that? Was that, that's obviously, was that your first debate of that I guess stance like you literally had you guys on the round table just going at it basically how was that and how did you prepare for that and I mean was that uh again was public speaking something you've you know been into in the past or because you, you seem like you're a very good speaker and I've watched multiple interviews of you I mean you know what you're doing and like you kind of seem like a stud you know you got the good hair you're always wearing the orange bow tie I love it like tell me how like did, what kind of preparation went into this debate Yeah, so I was never really involved with public speaking. I gave a speech at my high school graduation in front of, you know, about, I would say about six or 700 people. Um, But that was the only real public speaking experience I'd had, aside from being involved in musical theater and uh, productions, theater productions and bands, pretty much my whole middle school and high school life. So somebody came up to me and they're like, you need to teach me how to debate. And I looked at them and I'm like, I don't know how to debate. I just know how to go on stage and not look nervous, <laughs> which for a lot of people, that's the biggest thing is their nerves get the better of them. And then they just can't uh, express what they're trying to express. But as far as prep went into those debates, like I say, I don't have much public speaking experience aside from my, you know, Shakespeare and uh, musical theater experience, but Uh, basically what I did was I knew the policy that I wanted to get through. I knew what I wanted to say. If somebody asked me about wealth redistribution or somebody asked me about, uh, reproductive health or, uh, healthcare in general education, I knew what I wanted to say. So basically what I did was I practiced my opening and my closing statements, uh, to get across who I was as a new face. I wanted people to know, uh, what I stood for and how I came to be in that position, but then everything in between the opening and closing statements, I basically just took the question. I knew what I wanted to say. I knew what the policy was that I wanted to get across. I knew what the party stood for and I would just speak. And like I say, I think that's where a lot of that theater experience comes in because I know how to project. I know how to speak on stage. And of course the orange bow tie doesn't uh, hurt either. It's definitely gives somebody, uh, a lot of people something to look at. Um, and I mean, something you mentioned too, I, everybody else on stage was master uh, debaters, like they had not master debaters, but they had been through debates before, pardon me, they had led their parties through elections before. And I was the youngest person on stage by 19 years. 
So the next person wow. older than me uh, was not, I'm 23. He is 19 years older than I am. That's 41, two ish. I'm not good at math off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, so he's uh, 41, 42 in that age category, but I was the youngest person aside from that. And after this four year mandate, three of the four party leaders that are currently in the legislature are going to be in their late 60s or early 70s. So we're going to have a very, very uh, senior uh, senior group of leaders, uh, aside from whoever is elected as the, the new Democratic leader. So as far as debate prep, it's it's basically you just get up there and say what you want to say and, and answer the question. I know that's something politicians don't do a whole lot of, but uh, it's something I'm I don't lie well, so uh, I have to answer the question when it's given to me, but that's basically all I do. I just answer the question that's given and know where the party stands, and I go from there. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure with musical theater and, and some of that, I mean, almost doing a debate in that stance, just saying what you have to say would almost seem easy in a way. I mean, you definitely seem, like I said, very well-mannered behind the microphone, and I and I like some of the clips you've had. And so other than this, though, like, how have you liked doing like the interactions with the media and how, how has the media been at portraying, I mean, who, who you are and who, what you're about? Have they been doing a just job at the moment? And because, I mean, I'm just basically a nobody just kind of talking to you. I'm literally sitting in a basement right now, but I like to have this show kind of be, I mean, I don't really like to take a, I'm not saying to take a side of anything, but I mean, I just like to let people speak and have, have they done a good job, I guess, with your story so far? Yeah, I mean. Being a New Democrat in a province where the New Democrats haven't held a seat in a very long time, uh, people do tend... The, the beginning of the campaign, I guess I should say this, the beginning of the campaign and the end of the campaign, the media treated me and the party completely different. Um, towards the beginning of the campaign, they basically wrote us off. So, you know, you're not going to get a full slate of candidates. You're not going to be able to perform well. Uh, and they... You know, when they did give us coverage, it was not biased or not and not leaning one way or the other. But it, it wasn't what I would consider well-rounded coverage. Um, and we ended up getting a lot more candidates than people thought. Most people thought we'd get 15 out of the 49 we needed. We ended up getting double that. We ended up getting 33. Um, so we did do we didn't get a full slate, but we did do a lot better than a lot of people's expectations. And then, like you like you had mentioned, a lot of people said my debate performance was uh, well done. And by the end of it, I think once I had proven that I could speak to the media, I could speak at debates and not be intimidated because as, you know, a rookie in any profession, a rookie hockey player, uh, rookie road uh, construction worker, uh, rookie paramedic, you know, there's, there's a natural... Uh, tendency to hold back, I think, to make sure you're doing it right. And I learn very quickly and I, I don't let the media tell me uh, how I need to think or how I need to speak. I just, I am myself. I find that's the best way to connect with people is to just be yourself and be authentic. And I think over the, over the four weeks of the campaign, uh, they really saw that we were a serious party. We were serious uh, contenders um, and that we could pull ourselves together uh, when we needed to, which was something they didn't think we could do. And like I say, uh, I think the fact that I outperformed a lot of expectations that the media had uh, definitely helped feed into that better coverage and more consistent coverage uh, towards the end of the campaign. Because at the beginning of the campaign, we had a little bit of a problem getting some media outlets to show up to our uh, things. But by the end of it, they were uh, giving us that well-rounded, well uh maintained coverage so i think it had a lot to do with the fact that we really proved that we could you know for lack of a better term get ourselves together and move forward in a very uh quick and organized manner absolutely and and going back to what you were speaking on the, the age gaps of i mean not only yourself but through the entire the parties i mean they seem to be this and seniority we'll say is a theme with many of the politicians that are still in you know legislators around the country and around the world really so it that was part of the reason we got so intrigued i want got so intrigued i wanted to reach out to you is being you know a younger face and and that and i think we just need we need so much more of that now does your party have a lot of younger faces like yourself a good you know discrep not discrepancy i guess diversity in age and um are other other parties like do you notice in the province like the other big names like the liberals conservatives whatever are they do they have younger people joining their ranks in politics or 
is, is that something that's just kind of missing as a whole? Because I mean, times have changed a, a lot. And for, I just find for the theme of all these people that are, are so seen, like very not, I don't want to call them senior citizens, but they're very, they're older and, and so much has changed in so much in so little time. I mean, we got to get some, I mean, younger voices out here, you know, in, in, in policy like this. So a loaded question there, but what do you, what are your thoughts on that? I guess. Yeah, I think it's, you definitely hit the nail on the head. Times are a lot different. I mean, like I say, we're going to have three out of four party leaders who are going to be, for lack of a, a more precise term, they're going to be in their seventies. Like they're going to be past retirement age when the next election comes around. Um, I shouldn't say three out of four. The liberals are going to choose a new leader and we'll figure that out uh, probably in the next year who their leader is going to be. Um, so they may be younger or older, but as it stands right now, three of the four party leaders uh, are going to be in their 70s when the uh, next election rolls around. And you're right. I think it's definitely time for younger voices to get involved. And speaking to the last candidate makeup, um, the NDP had the highest percentage of under 35s. Um, we had 53% of our candidates. So over half of our candidates were under the age of 35. And I think that's absolutely amazing because we had some retirees in our ranks as well. So we had three people who were retired uh, and we had some people who were in uh, their late 30s, early 40s. And then, like I say, we had a large group of uh, individuals. Our youngest candidate was 19. And uh, then we had some up to the age of 35 and that made up the biggest chunk. And I think when you have a group of candidates that are that young, we recognize that we have to listen. New Brunswick's a very old uh, age province. So uh, a lot of our citizenry is above the age of 65. So they are uh, past that retirement age. Um, but I think as young people, we recognize that we have to listen to the needs of seniors. We have to listen to the needs of uh, middle-aged working families, middle-aged workers, uh, people who are you know, getting ready to start thinking about retirement. Uh, but we also give the perspective that a lot of people don't pay attention to, and that is the perspective of the you know 18 to 35 group of, of voter and group of citizenry, um, the people who need access to quality, affordable education, the people who need a sustainable uh, healthcare system to get them into retirement. So when young people come to the table, we don't just look at the next five, the next 10 years, we need, we have to, because we're young, we have to look at the next 30 or 40 or 50 years at a minimum, because we need to make sure that the systems we have in place are sustainable and are working for us when we get to that age that we need them. So I think it provides a really unique perspective. And I'm glad to have led a party that had such a young uh, group of candidates. Uh, and like I say, we had older candidates as well. So it really rounded out uh, the perspectives that we could give uh, as far as making sure that all voices in New Brunswick are represented. And up until now, I think uh, the youth vote and the youth voice has been mm -hmm. underrepresented. So I was very proud to be able to lead a party with 53% young people. Oh, absolutely. I think it's it's impressive. And how, how did the election go in terms of, I mean, not just results, but was it what you were hoping for? What would you have done different next time? And I mean, do you see yourself? Obviously, there's gonna be, a, like you said, a leadership election for the party coming this um, April 2021. Are you going to see yourself maybe one day returning to the leadership position? Or what will your involvement with the party look like after these uh, next coming months? Yeah, so it, it definitely wasn't the result we had hoped for. We went from 5% to the vote to 1.7. Um, we associate a lot of that to the SNAP election. So because we didn't know an election was coming, it took us two weeks to get signs out of a four-week campaign. We had 28 days in total, and it took us 14, between 14 and 16 days to get our candidates, to get our signs, to get uh, radio ads. So it, we were really behind in making ourselves visible. And with the debates, like I say, a lot of people did compliment me on my debates. The only issue was those debates didn't happen until after... Uh, nearly 150,000 New Brunswickers had already voted. So a lot of the people who may have thought I did a good job at the debates, some of them had already voted. Uh, and like I say, we had huge turnout in the advanced polls this election due to COVID. So we everybody was yeah. making sure that they staggered it out. Obviously. Um, and that really hurt us, I think, because we didn't really have a chance to get going until after the advanced polls had closed. 
um, and we didn't get a chance to really make ourselves visible um, until uh, about two weeks into the campaign, which unfortunately is after a lot of people had already made up their minds uh, and voted. So I think, uh, you know, four years from now, we're going to have a set election date. You know, it's it's the, uh, I can tell you exactly when it is, the Monday after Thanksgiving uh, in October of 2024. So we have fixed election dates in this province. So it's going to be very easy to start planning for an election uh, four years away. So we're going to have our signs ready. We're going to have our candidates ready. We're going to have our radio ads done. And we're going to make sure that we are out there every time we can in the next four years to make sure New Brunswickers know that we are here and we are ready to represent them. Um, And like you say, as far as the uh, leadership race goes, um, we are going to have a election in April, like you said, in 2021. Um, the deadline to get on the ballot is the 28th of this month. So on the 28th of October of 2020, so at the end of this month, we will know who's on the ballot. So it may be zero people, at which case we have to restart. It may be three people, at which point we'll have an election in April. So if it's only one person, then they'll be acclaimed probably the middle or end of November. Um, so I will stop being the leader in November, but if there's two or more people on the ballot, then we'll go to a, an election in April. Um, I will move into a more office role, making sure that everything is filed properly making sure that training is done, uh, because I live just about a half an hour drive from the office and a lot of other members of our executive and our core team live, uh, about two to three hours away. So it's a lot easier for me to be into the office as much as possible. Um, but I definitely wouldn't want to rule out a leadership run, you know, after after the next leader has has decided that they no longer wish to have the position. Or if this leadership race fails, you know, I may resign and choose to run as permanent leader. Um, everything's still on the table as far as it goes. We're just waiting to see what happens on the 28th of October. But uh, I don't want to rule anything out. And when the next leader if that's not, you know, whoever that may be, whenever they're done, um, I don't want to rule out a run at that time either. I'll only be, you know, in theory, I'll be in my mid-30s, which still isn't uh, any age for a uh, political leader. Um, it's still not reaching that old. You know, you're not in the in your mid-40s, I would say, is when you start, you know, being not being able to use that young moniker anymore. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like I say, even if the next leader is in power uh, within the party for the next 10 years... Um, that would only make me 33. So it's I'm still relatively young, and I, I definitely wouldn't want to rule that out. 100%. And how does it go with uh, the relationship between the provincial party of the NDP, and how does that work with – what is the relationship with the federal party? Is is it um, – like, how does that work? Are you guys in contact closely? Are are your beliefs settled with theirs? Um, are they aligned, you know, closely? Or are they – you guys have different messages you find for – you know, provincial legislator towards a federal or, or what are your thoughts on that or, or how things are going with them in the current landscape? Yeah, so all of the wings of the NDP are very interconnected. So uh, just for an example, there's no actual federal membership. Everybody who's a new Democrat is a member of their provincial party. And then we send our list of members to the federal party and that's what they use. So there's no uh, differentiation. We uh, are very integrated as far as the actual Uh, ground game paperwork goes. Um, But we do share a lot of resources. I know there are some new Democrats here in the province who are making phone calls for the provincial elections happening in BC and Saskatchewan right now. Um, And then federally, when there's a federal election, obviously, we all come together to support our local candidates. Um, In between elections, they provide us with help for uh, messaging, for IT and uh, graphic design. They Uh, help a lot because they have a lot more resources to go around. They have a a fairly uh, significant federal caucus uh, in parliament and they have a little bit more fundraising uh, sources to, to use. Uh, So they do help us a lot with that. A lot of behind the scenes stuff, obviously with COVID, they can't be sending people all over the province, which is or over the country, which is normally what happens. Um, So during a non COVID time uh, or when there's a scheduled election, they would have sent people here to help uh, campaign, manage campaigns, to help door knock, to help fundraise. Uh, and with COVID, that's kind of been uh, an issue with the exception of Saskatchewan because Saskatchewan knew they were having a uh, provincial uh, election. So basically the federal party sent 
people to Saskatchewan two weeks ahead of time so that they could start doing a lot of the work in their uh, quarantine. And then uh, they were able to go out and actually do ground game in Saskatchewan. And, and like I say, a snap election didn't allow that. But normally the federal party and the provincial party are very interconnected, uh, are very uh, close when they uh, talk about policy and stuff like that. The policy can differ because federally and provincially the governments take care of different things. So the priorities tend to be a little bit different. I know uh, provincially, I really like to focus on healthcare, education, and infrastructure, whereas federally, the NDP tends to like to make sure that federal employees are taken care of, that the health transfers are there. There's no specific policy, but they transfer more health uh, funding and that uh, budgets are being dealt with so that they can help uh, regular Canadians, that they're not helping the billionaire millionaire class, they're helping the people who, who work every day, who are struggling, who are making sure that they're doing the best they can to provide for themselves and their family and their neighborhood. So that's kind of, it's the same messaging, just different uh, talking points, different priorities, um, just because of the different ways that governments have to deal with things. But uh, they are, the provincial parties and the federal party are very interconnected. Um, we make sure that we are sharing as many resources as possible. And like I say, during non-COVID times, it's more of a uh, outward, it's more of a, a visible uh, show of support. But uh, with COVID, it has to be more behind the scenes because we do need a lot of stuff done uh, that requires people on the ground. But unfortunately, we can't get that uh, due to COVID restrictions. So uh, things have been moving well, and I, I'm excited to continue that uh, relationship with the federal party. It's just a matter of uh, going and seeing what uh, what what we can do with COVID and after COVID, making sure that that relationship is still as strong as it is today. No doubt, no doubt. Um, <clears throat> what's it going to look like, do you think, um, like the state of, I guess, we'll go back to New Brunswick. I mean, I love New Brunswick and in a way it felt like it's always been home to me. I spent a ton of summers there, um, absolutely adored the area. I played two years of junior hockey up there in Miramichi and I adored it. I would have stayed I would have loved to go there and eventually make New Brunswick my home. But I mean, at the moment, it just seems like, like so many people know, like so many people are leaving that. I have so many cousins that have left the province. It just, it seems like a hard place to get work right now. And I mean, I worry about the province and its future and, and how they're going to find jobs for people. And, and I just guess what the next 30, 40 years is going to look like for the province. And I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts on, on how things are going at the moment and maybe what the future is going to look like for the province as a whole? Yeah, this is a great question. It's definitely something that came up uh, during the campaign as well. Um, New Brunswick is one of the poorest, not one of the, it is the poorest province in the country. Um, it has the fastest aging population in the country, and that's mostly because young people, uh, your and my age, uh, are constantly leaving the province. We, you know, we want to go to Alberta so that there's, you know, because there's jobs. We want to go to Ontario because there's economic opportunity. We want to go to British Columbia because there's cultural and economic prosperity out there. Um, and it's really about enticing young people to stay and making sure that when they stay, there's adequate employment. So in this province, we have two, uh, just, to name, just to name the two that are on top of my head, we have the Irvings and the McCains. Um, and they are the some of the most profitable companies in the Maritimes. They pay next to no taxes. Every chance they get, they're laying off workers. And the government doesn't seem to want to do anything about it. And I think that's one of the biggest issues we're seeing is just a lack of action from consecutive liberal and conservative governments. And uh, you were you lived in Alberta for a little bit, so you'll, you'll know who I mean when I say Syncrude, obviously. Um, yeah. So in New Brunswick, and uh, this is more for your listeners than anything else, but imagine living in a province where... Uh, Syncrude owns the gas stations, they own all the wood you buy, they own all the newspapers you read, they own half of the radio stations you listen to. Everything that comes in or out of the province is trucked and shipped by uh, Syncrude. Like any other province, it just sounds crazy and ridiculous to them. They don't understand why that's a thing. And in New Brunswick, to say that everything is controlled by the Irvings, I think is, is a very accurate statement. And when companies are allowed to run basically the province, um, they don't have any incentive to increase their job numbers. They don't have any incentive to keep paying taxes because for them, this situation is working out very well. They're still earning 
uh, record profits year after year. And even during this year of COVID, they're still going to earn more money than they did last year, but they're not investing it back into their communities that they're uh, using the labor from. They're not reinvesting it into uh, the people that are living there. They're taking it and they're sending it literally to uh, tax shelters in the Caribbean and in Europe. So when we're talking about how to get this province stabilized over the next 40 years, we really need to make sure that there is some kind of a jobs guarantee, that there is some kind of a basic living income, and that these companies who are exploiting the opportunity and the, the compassion that New Brunswickers show are being held to account and that they're being made to pay their fair share and that they're being made to distribute those opportunities fairly to the people who need them so that people aren't constantly leaving the province and that we can actually get people to come back to the province. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I'm obviously very familiar with the two companies you're speaking of. And I mean, I obviously notice how big of a, a, a pull, I guess, Irvin has down there. I mean, tons of jobs, a lot of people work there. And I mean, it is in a way, it seems like a, I guess we'll call it a monopoly or an oligopoly or whatever you want to say about it down there but and i mean in terms of how big new brunswick really is like what's the population even looking like at the moment uh, like how many people actually live in the province yeah so we have be... around seven hundred and fifty thousand ish um which is less than the population of edmonton and it's way less than yeah. the population of toronto or ottawa no doubt for sure and and i always wondered like obviously these companies have this big pull but does that ever come down to at the point of like i mean per capita of like how many people actually live in the province like what I guess, how could that be broken down any different? Like they have this family is just what they've just, I don't understand how, they, I mean, in a way, like, I don't know how to think about it because growing up, I mean, it seemed like they've created all these jobs, but now they have, I mean, they're obviously taking advantage in some ways of, of, of stance they have and the power they have in the province. But I mean, I, I don't know what to think sometimes. I mean, they create a lot of jobs, but I mean, what are they doing? I, I don't even know what to think. It just kind of puts my mind in a pickle because I mean, New Brunswick isn't that big. And I always wonder, I'm like, like are they, I feel like New, like New Brunswick has had opportunities to ve- develop certain resources and, and that hasn't happened. And I'm just wondering, like, it just makes me still wonder, just question, like, what's really going on, like, with the province as a whole? And what's the future going to look like with the company like Irving still at the stronghold? I mean, what, what really will that entail down the road from here? Yeah, and that's a great point, too, is that the, this one company, I, I talk about Irving a lot because they're really the... Uh, they would claim they're the success story. Uh, they started off very small, just hauling logs. Uh, they got into the oil business, built a refinery, um, and it, it did it did snowball. And you know, as far as capitalism is concerned, as far as they're concerned, they are the success story um, for New Brunswick. But uh, you know, part of the issue is is that I don't mind a company. Uh, you know, they have to. You know, we need jobs to sustain our economy. People need jobs to pay their bills. So I'm definitely. Uh, not ever going to get onto Irving uh, or the McCain's for uh, creating jobs. That's that's great that they did it. But the issue now is that because they control, like I said, I mean, there's 750,000 people in New Brunswick. So imagine if two companies, uh, you know, held 70% of the jobs or more um, in Edmonton. It just, it would be, it allows them to to underpay their workers. It allows them to avoid uh, taxes. It allows them to influence the government because they go to the government and they say, listen, if you don't do what we want, we're going to fire a whole bunch of people and then you're going to have people who are unemployed. And I think when you have smaller companies, like, uh, you know, we have trucking companies in this province, they're just all owned by uh, the Irving. So when you break up that huge monopoly and monopoly is really the problem here it's not necessarily the company itself but it's the fact that it's been over consecutive and successive governments allowed to grow to the point where it is now a monopoly that's the issue because you don't have anybody competing anymore no one's competing for higher wages no no one's saying okay well come work for me and i'll give you a dollar more so it allows companies to really undervalue their workers to decrease their benefits to decrease their access to uh funds and services that uh, companies would normally provide when there's more competition. Um, and really, when you look at it, you need to make sure that the private sector, if you're going to have it be a well-run private sector, is operating in a way that allows people to get ahead, that allows people to say, okay, well, I could go to Irving for $13 an hour, or I could go to uh, you know the Tracy company for $15 an hour. So I've got job opportunities at both these places. I'm going to go here. 
And then Irving says, well, I need to pay my workers more because they're going to this other place. So when you talk about monopolies, like I say, it's not necessarily the companies themselves, but the situation that the province has allowed them to exploit. And when you have monopolies, it just, it's not good for anybody. So it, it's definitely, when you look at the long-term success of this province, we really need to make sure that we're breaking up these large monopolies. For sure. And I mean, I guess it's, it's a very interesting scenario that you do have in the Maritimes because, I mean, I totally understand the argument where you're saying where, well, what if um, a company, uh, like instead of like it was in Calgary, what if one company ruled the whole, you know, the whole area of all these people? But I guess that obviously doesn't happen because of the competition, the differences, and I mean, a whole bunch of different factors. But I feel like in the way the Irvings have almost, it's like they've adopted this power from a lack of competition from the get-go. And now it's just kind of, it's sprung out of control where there's just, no one can even compete with them. And I mean, in terms of projects in the, in the province itself, like there's been so much backlash. I mean, there's been so much, I mean, there's been those big riots about fracking. There's been so much, there's been opportunity that has, has, has I guess it's, it's shown itself and then it's never been agreed upon. I mean, where, where's that going to eventually lead? And then how, how could potential projects like that, were they always going to help the Irvings or was that all these opportunities kind of like preventing other people from getting in there and maybe diversifying the province in certain ways? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something I talked about on the campaign trail was, uh, you know, an investment in, in a green economy. So making sure that uh, companies were able to operate and create this green technology and help, you know, create jobs in that way. Uh, because what the issue is right now is that when we look at like fracking, for instance, uh, there's a huge opportunity in New Brunswick to do fracking. There's a, there's a lot of uh, natural gas uh, reserves in the province that we could tap into. The issue is, is that a, it's it's not great for the environment. There are other ways to to get that energy that we need that is less uh, environmentally harmful but when we are going to invest in these kind of technologies you're going to have a company that's already established that already has uh, the technology the capability to be able to do it and that's the Irvings so when we look at investing in in technology we really need to start investing in technology that the Irvings would have to compete for like everybody else Um, and then making sure that we are favoring the local the small business to help diversify our economy. Because like I say, it's the monopoly that's the issue. I don't want to make it sound like Mr. Irving sitting in his office is just sitting there like Scrooge McDuck. Um, although, <laughs> don't get me wrong, he may be doing that. But I don't think that the company is necessarily the issue. I don't have any issue with with private enterprise existing for certain things and in certain ways with regulation. But it's come to the point now where, like I say, they can just go in and say, well, you're going to give me this or I'm going to you know, lay off this many workers or you're going to give me this or I'm not going to invest in this new technology that's going to help the province because as we've said it right, as we've set up right now, only one company can and that's the Irvings. They're just so, so massive. And this, this term comes to my mind that terrifies me, too big to fail. Um, you know, the banks in the US in 2008 were too big to fail and then a global economic meltdown hit. So what happens if Irving is too big to fail and all of a sudden, you know, too much of it, like, you know, it's involved in all of our newspapers, involved in a lot of our wood processing in the province. So what happens when wood prices bottom out? What happens when nobody starts, uh, keeps reading the paper anymore? You know, you're, this idea that one company can own it all is, is terrifying because if that one company fails, what happens to all of the jobs, not some of the jobs, like if, one small company fails or if one medium-sized company fails when you have a company that basically like i say it's like Syncrude owning 80 percent of everything in alberta it's just unfathomable like in ontario or quebec or uh, any of the western provinces it's, it's unfathomable to have one company own so much of everything and it just worries me because what happens if the global economy goes kaboom and then what happens to this whole province this whole province is affected not small pockets that we can help it's the whole province that all of a sudden all of our services and all of our systems are overwhelmed so that's really what what worries me um and it's like you say i mean fracking is is a perfect example i mean irving would just take that and they would it would become part of the irving monopoly Um, whereas i think if we were to invest in tidal power new brunswick has some of the highest tidal forces in the world Um, wind power we have some of the best areas for wind generation in the country 
um, and solar generation. We have a lot of unused farmland that we can use uh, as very flat land to help uh, power uh, with the with the sun. So, and we have slightly milder winters than they do in the more northern areas and in the prairies of the pr uh, country. So, it, it's definitely a great place to have a lot of these non-monopolized uh, resource development. So, like I told somebody the other day, I said, you know. It's very easy to monopolize coal power plants because they're physical. They have to be somewhere. It's very difficult to monopolize the sun. It's very difficult to monopolize the ocean. It's very difficult to monopolize the wind. And I think that's where that's what start is going to start this uh, demonopolization of the province is really investing in things that can't be monopolized. Mm hmm. I mean, I, I definitely understand. Like, I want the, I want the green energy to work just as much as everyone. But I, I always just worry about. I mean, with wind and solar, I just worry about sometimes efficiencies and stuff like that. I mean, it's too bad the economy's gotten so used to working off all these fossil fuels. Mm. I mean, it's almost like, it's just so hard to break that chain. And I mean, green energy's got to be the future. And I hope that just that's that's got to be. I mean, that's the answer, and that's what everyone would want. It's just, I mean, if there could be a solution to these problems, I mean like a band-aid almost you know what i mean like you could go another way and, and and have all these green technologies work out it'd be great but i mean I, I always i wonder if there needs to be some somewhat of a balance in there at all do you think of, of i guess not straight fossil fuels or anything but i mean do you think you develop any of the resources new brunswick has to offer or do you just do, is that just not a direction that you think we should even be gone or thought of as a province well and i mean that's an excellent point and there definitely needs to i think when people talk about uh green energy and this is and this is on us this is the people who are talking about it. this is on the politicians this is on the scientists who are talking about it we talk about it in such a way that it implies that we're going from fossil fuels to green energy boom overnight mm -hmm. and that's definitely not how it has to happen that's that's not how it can happen that's impossible so what needs to happen is uh, I always go to the, this is actually a federal issue. The federal government invests, uh, a invested roughly $4 billion in some form or another in the fossil fuel sector. So what I would be suggesting is that we take that $4 billion worth of investment in an already profitable sector. I mean, the oil, the oil sector has been profitable for decades and they're still profitable now, even in this economic downturn. Um, that we take that $4 billion, or at least most of it, and invest it into research and development for green technology so that in the next five to 10 years, we can really make sure that we're doing that move, that we are going through uh, and actually have the technology available. Because like I say, 10 years ago, you weren't going to buy an electric car because it could only go a few hundred kilometers. Well, now we've got electric vehicles that can go just as far as any gas-powered vehicle of the same caliber. So it's about making sure that we're taking the money from where it doesn't need to be and putting it where it does when we talk about government investment so that we can make that transition so that we're not just going, okay, all of you oil patch workers, congratulations, you're laid off. Like we need to talk about when we're moving to a green economy, we need to talk about retraining because there's a lot of people like my dad. My dad worked in the oil patch for uh, close to a decade and a half he would have to be retrained. Now, luckily he's back here now and he's, he's driving truck, which is something he knows how to do. But I think of the hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, in Saskatchewan and Alberta and BC who would need to be retrained as we move away from fossil fuels and into a green economy. And that's something that people just don't talk about. And like I say, that's on us. That's on the people who are discussing this issue. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we're not going to turn off all the coal power plants tomorrow. We're not going to throw out all of the oil patch workers tomorrow. It's a transition that has to happen over, uh, you know, five to 10 years, but we need to make sure the funding is there for the research to get done. Because like you say, the economy's gotten so used to it. The economy's gotten so integrally wound around the use of fossil fuels that we need, like, we can't just rip off the Band-Aid. We can't just, we can't just, it, it just wouldn't work. The economy would collapse. So it needs to be something that's done over a set period of time, and it needs to be something that's done with money that is invested in research and development to make sure that we don't see a change in our lives, so that we make sure that uh, the power coming to our homes is still steady and reliable, that we have uh, efficient battery packs, that we have efficient solar panels. The most efficient solar panel right now is about 35% efficient. And mm -hmm. 
you know that's an, and I was just talking my last episode I spoke on wind turbines and their their inefficiencies so I mean not to make it a topic but that's just my concern like yeah. you said not to interrupt you there no no and that and that's the perfect example too is that we need investment because people have suggested scientists have suggested that uh, solar panels can be up to eighty five percent efficient I think that's kind of you know between seventy five and eighty five percent that's kind of their top range with our current understanding of how they work. Um, but we need investment in those areas to make sure that they're 80% efficient. Because right now, like I say, they're around 35 or 40% efficient. That's not good enough. It's, it's something that we need to be promoting, but it's something that we need to be doing research in. And right now, I think we've kind of plateaued on our green energy research. And like I say, it's really about making sure those funds are made available because right now we're giving billions of dollars to a, uh, an industry that already makes billions of dollars a year. And we could be reinvesting that into stuff that is going to make sure that we have a robust economy, making sure that people are employed. And I, I look at it in a two-pronged way because we have this argument all the time with the Green Party because the Green Party is quite relevant here in this province. And you know they're very focused on environmental issues, which is great. We, we need a clean environment. We need clean air. We need clean water. We need uh, places to farm and fish and hunt. We need a clean and... Uh, prosperous environment but if you can't have a clean environment with people who are able to live in their environment who are able to afford to live uh in their communities then there's really no like what's the point of having a clean environment if you can't afford to live in it and what's the point of being able to afford to live in your community but if you can't breathe the air and drink the water what's the point so it needs to be done in a collaborative it needs to be done as a two-pronged one-point solution so there needs to be uh, you can't just focus on environmental issues without focusing on the social and labor relation issues mixed in with it. And you can't focus on just labor and social issues without focusing on the environment because people need to live in the environment and the environment needs to be accessible for people to work in. So it has to go hand in hand. You can't just talk about one or the other. And I think that's where, you know, the conservative party tends to talk about jobs more so than the environment and they don't really focus on both. And the Green Party is the exact opposite. They tend to focus on the environment without really focusing on the social and the economic aspect of it. And then the Liberals, they try to blend it together, but I don't think they do it in a very efficient way. Um, so like I say, when we're talking about that, we really need to talk about making sure that it's efficient and that it is uh, a cooperative and a holistic approach, making sure that people can live in the environment and afford to live in it and that the environment is healthy and sustainable for people to live in. For sure. No, I like this. And I like this conversation because I think I do have a lot of listeners that are from outside of the Maritimes, um, Western Canada and beyond. But I think that them getting more familiar with things like the Irving Company, what's going on in different parts of the country. Um, one of the last things I'll touch on with you, and, and you, this is a perfect person to ask you being um, having experience living out in Alberta as well, is I find um, in my travels across the country, which have been thankfully uh, pretty diverse. I've lived in uh, Lethbridge. I lived in the Maritimes. I've, I've lived in a couple of different places in Ontario now, um, been in Calgary. I just find the country is so big and in a way underpopulated with only 30 million people. I just find there's such an absolute drastic difference in the way people think. I mean, people in New Brunswick have totally different issues than the people in Alberta, obviously, and everywhere else. And I just find it just it's such a great difference in the way people think, the needs they have, and what they're paying attention to politically. I mean, it's just it's just very surprising. Can you not attest to that at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I say, living in Alberta and living in New Brunswick, two very different atmospheres, two very different ways of going about things. I would argue people have kind of the same underlying issues. It's just how, like in Alberta, uh, up until recently, they haven't had any issue with employment. It hasn't, it hasn't been an issue. You need a job, you go get one. Um, and in, in New Brunswick, that's always been an issue. Um, but now we're seeing that Alberta is starting to struggle a little bit with that. And uh, it's really about making sure that everyone understands that we're all, we're all, we all need to be in this together. But you're right, it's, it's definitely a different atmosphere. People deal with things differently. People are, uh, you know, in certain parts of the country, like Alberta, they've been very, uh, very prosperous for a very long time, and it is taking some adjusting to to this new reality. Unfortunately, that they have to go through. And I, I have the utmost respect for the people. I mean, I still have friends in Alberta. I have family in Alberta, 
And I have the utmost sympathy and the utmost respect for them making the best out of a bad situation. Um, but you're completely right. All across this country, it was such a large country, second largest in the world. And we have the same pot, we have less than the same population as California. So it becomes extremely difficult to, uh, you know, deploy services and to really feel that kind of connection. But I think as Canadians, uh, we really have this weird ability to just help people no matter where they're from and no matter what we're doing. It's, it's this really weird thing that I, I do notice as a commonality all across the country is just people seem, seem open to hearing about other people's issues, even though they are different issues. And even though people all across this country do have different needs that need to be met. I think that that is something that we can say as Canadians is that wherever we go, for the most part, uh, I think people are open and happy to hear uh, what we're going through and what we need and, and helping each other out. So it's definitely a, uh, an issue, an issue based system that we have in Canada. And like you say, where we're so sparsely populated, about 30, 35 million people um, over the second largest landmass, uh, contiguous landmass in, in the world. Um, it's definitely uh, interesting to see how different provinces work on the same issue, work on different issues and what they prioritize. Um, but it's always great to see these commonalities that we have all across the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, I think this was very interesting. I appreciate you coming on. I mean, I like getting people on that have differing opinions. I mean, I've had people on that are probably going to be uh, pro oil. I've had some people want to come on and talk about oil in the future. And I mean, I just like joining these conversations. I mean, having different opinions and just hearing different things. And, you know, it's nice having you out there in, in New Brunswick, like I, we know, and we have listeners from all over. So, I mean, just trying to, I guess, uh, diversify our listenership and what we're talking about. And I really, again, want to thank you again for coming on this. I mean, it's almost been an hour we've been talking and I feel like we could just keep diving into different rabbit holes. So, I mean, thank you so much for coming on. And is there anything you'd like to say just before you, I mean, pop off the air here with us? No, I mean, thank you very much for, for having me. This was great. Um, I think it is absolutely great to, to have those kinds of of discussions and this has been a great discussion like you say i think we could probably sit out here for the next four hours and still keep talking but uh no it's been great um i want to thank you for the questions i mean i, I know we had discussed earlier and it's it's not i i like these kind of discussions it's just kind of free flowing it's kind of free form we just ask what we're asking we let the conversation go where it is and i think these are the best kinds of conversations that from my point of view, as a as a politician, from a political point of view, and I know you don't do a whole lot of politics on your on your show, but uh, from a political point of view, not a political podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, but from a uh, from a political point of view, from my point of view, this is the con- these are the kinds of conversations that I think people respect more, that people like to listen to, um, because it's just you and I having a nice casual conversation. It's not. Uh, super robotic and you know that stereotypical politician voice that a lot of people uh, seem to associate so yeah thank you so much for doing it and doing it in this format it's been great and uh, i i will get you to send me the link so i can share it if that's all right with you and uh, oh i hope that'd be great we'll uh like i say i think it's been great and i really appreciate it and i'll come on anytime you'd like Absolutely. Well, maybe we'll be up to be a future guest of the show. On behalf of everyone that listens to the project, thank you so much for joining us, Mackenzie, and we'll hope to hear from you in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. Oh, I think I'm I'm so much smarter now from having listened to a conversation like that. And that's what this project, this project, this podcast is for. It's, to, it's just to, I'm just dribbling a little bit of insight. That's all we're doing. We're just, we're finding a little bit about the unknown. All right. I really enjoyed that going to try to have more um, people come on like that randomly that I, I don't know that can offer me some substance in terms of a conversation. I really enjoyed that. I think that was uh, something fun, something that I can going to try to continue to do, reach out there and see, see what kind of people are out there and want to have uh, be, a, be an impromptu guest. All right. We had a great time doing that. Um, <clears throat> this is something I, I want to maybe get this guy on the show one day. I had a really hilarious interaction the other day. And when I told my girlfriend this and some of my friends that I did this, they, they kind of thought I was kidding, but this actually happened to me. I always go to the same gas station. Um, I like to go to uh, the same ones all the time. I kind of do that wherever I'm living. So this one I've been going to is turned into the one that I make it my routine to stop at, fill up, grab a drink, grab a snack, whatever you got to get. 
So, I mean, I'm at a gas stations quite a bit, isn't anyone? I mean, I drive a truck, I burn a little more gas than I should, especially with driving to work 25 minutes and back every day. So, I mean, I see the people a lot. And this family that owns it, they're unbelievable. Dad's name's Manny. He's the biggest beauty ever. He knows me by name. I don't know how many people he must know by name, but he walks in there, he knows everyone, knows what you're doing, what you're up to. It's cool. I like that. You know, it's got that homey feel to it. And he's got his son. His son is uh, Sammy, absolute beauty. And um, me and Sammy have a good relationship. It seems he's always in there when I'm rolling through. So I usually see Sam. Sam's my absolute boy. We talk about stuff. He likes to just randomly shoot the shit. Maybe talk a little current events quick. So if he has you, if he has you when you're not in a rush, you know. He sells you gum. They got all the good, uh, big league chew, every flavor you've ever had. That's kind of what got me sold in the place. Come in there. They got great drinks. Drinks you can't get anywhere else. Anyways, I'm enough of that. So this guy, I go in there. I routinely buy stuff from him. He sees me all the time. We're always talking. And then one time I know where he's like, man, how about you take my number and we chill? And I was kind of like in my head, I was like, what? I was like, I've never had that. I felt like we were kind of like, it almost felt like we were hitting on each other, but as friends, as, as brothers. And then I was like, man, this guy's sick as shit. Like, why wouldn't I agree to that? So then I gave him my number, thought nothing of it. And then here we go. And a couple of days later, he shoots me a taxi. They go, oh, come over, let's chill. So I was doing nothing. I was on the way home from the gym and they went over and we chilled and he lives literally in his house. Is, this house is connected to the gas station. So they bought this place like five years ago. It's connected right to it. And he, the kid lives there alone. And it's sick. It just goes in there. He has a couple of roommates. So he pulls me in there. Just like a normal looking house. And he brings me in there. It feels like a university house, you know? Like one of the ones that all the boys would have lived at together. And he brings me into his room. And his room is nasty. He's got like this huge mural painted on the wall. He's got all this like microphones like sick tv like unreal setup with a desk like it looks unreal couch at the end of his bed you know so you can like sit there and watch tv and jam out and stuff and he ends up telling me that he's a rapper and he opens up his closet and he's got a full-blown rap studio in his closet he's built it he was telling me that he grew up in scarborough before he moved there and he was trying to like get into the music thing and he'd be renting studio time with like 15 guys in the room during his hour and they're all just like drinking and smoking weed and like not helping him get his projects done. So he said, fuck this noise. And he went and he built an entire studio in his little house here. And it's unreal. And he was showing me some of his tunes. They were deadly. And I'm going to form this pod. Maybe I'm going to get him some of his tunes. We can feature them as like a little runaway track. We got to get him some noise because he's releasing some stuff on Apple and Spotify. He's in the process of getting that out there. And this kid needs to be heard because this was a great way. I just randomly met him. He pulls me in the back there and he's got sick tunes and he was bumping them. It was hilarious. What a great time to be alive, folks. This episode, it's gone on quite long and I, I think we're just going to leave it there. I had a great time here, folks. I hope you enjoyed this. I really hope you used the email I, I uh, created. I'm thinking about making an Instagram. I'm so f- I'm so bad at this stuff. Like I hate social media. Like when I post an episode, like it takes me like four years to get out my shitty little posts about whatever. So again, I'm trying to do this organically. Um, I don't pay for any of my ads or anything like that. I don't have any like social media boostage to my posts. I just I just put them out. So. If you could ever help me, give me a share, give me a like, subscribe to the show. Make sure you're downloading the show so they can see you're doing it. That's the only way. You can just press play. No one knows you watch. So help me out there. Give me a rating. Give me a five-star. Write a review. Um, But apart from that, I don't want to keep asking for shit like that. But this was good. This was fun. Um, And I hope that this gets out on time. I'm really bad for that. But I'm going to get on it, folks. I'm getting the show. is not going anywhere. It's only going to get better. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to an independent voice. There's nothing behind this but me. Um, I'm not being told what to say by anyone, so let's keep this thing going. Let's have a good time, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Reach out. Tell me what you thought. I love hearing about that. The only way I know I like that better is if you tell me what's wrong. Joking. That doesn't mean shit on me, though, right? Let's do this constructively. Kidding. Great episode. Episode 13 in the books. Thanks for coming. It's the end of the project, baby.